Hi, I'm Jonathan Hayfitz, and welcome to Law and Film, a podcast that explores the rich connections between law and film. Law is critical to many films. Film, in turn, tells us a lot about the law. In each episode, we'll examine a film that is noteworthy from a legal perspective. What legal issues does the film explore? What does it get right about the law? And what does it get wrong? How is law important to understanding the film? And what does the film teach us about the law and about the larger social and cultural context in which the law is embedded? Our film today is The Trial of the Chicago Seven, a 2020 dramatization of the trial of a group of anti-Vietnam War protesters for inciting riots at the 1968 Democratic National Convention in Chicago. The defendants, originally eight, included prominent figures of the era, including Abby Hoffman, Jerry Rubin, Tom Hayden, Rennie Davis, Dave Dellinger, and Bobby Seale. The film was written and directed by Aaron Sorkin and features an outstanding ensemble cast, including Sasha Baron Cohen, Jeremy Strong, Eddie Redmayne, Yahya Abdul-Mateen II, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Mark Rylance, and Frank Langella, with a great cameo by Michael Keaton. The film was nominated for numerous awards, the protests at the DNC and the subsequent trial of the Chicago Seven was a seminal event of the period, one whose implications still reverberate today. We're very fortunate today to have as our guest, Jerry Lefcourt. Jerry is recognized as one of the country's foremost criminal defense attorneys. In his 40 years practicing law, his clients have spanned the spectrum from Yippie founder, Abby Hoffman and Black Panther leaders to Drexel Burnham, Lambert securities trader, Bruce Newberg, real estate mogul, Harry Helmsley, actor Russell Crowe, New York State Assembly Speaker Mel Miller, New York State Assemblyman and Brooklyn Democratic leader Vito Lopez, and hip-hop music promoter and Murder, Inc. record label head Irv Gotti. Jerry has a distinguished career in public service as well. He recently completed over 20 years service as Speaker of the New York State Assembly's designee to the statewide Commission on Judicial Nomination which committee recommends to the governor a slate of candidates for the New York Court of Appeals, state's highest court. He currently serves on the Magistrate Selection Committee of the Southern District of New York. He's the past president of the Foundation for Criminal Justice of the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers, former chair of the Criminal Advocacy Committee of the Association of the Bar of the City of New York, past president of the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers, and past president of the New York Criminal Bar Association. He's been recognized in New York Magazine's survey of outstanding practitioners and has also been recognized by super lawyers every year since 2006 as among New York City's finest criminal defense lawyers. He has received numerous additional accolades for his lifelong work as a tireless advocate for the rights of criminal defendants. And we're very fortunate to have him here as a guest today on Law and Film, as Jerry was one of the original defense attorneys in the Chicago 7 case and in other notable cases at the time, including the defense of the Black Panther Party members at a 1970 trial. Jerry, welcome. Thank you, good to be here. So I wanna start by having you talk a little bit about your connection to the Chicago 7 case and the other cases at that time. What was your role, how were you involved? Well, 1968 was probably one of the wildest years in our country's history. Not only did we have assassinations of Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy, we had the Democratic National uh, Com Commission and the protests around that. Also, one of the things that happened was I was trying to form a union 
of lawyers at the Legal Aid Society. And after we had three organizational meetings, they fired me saying it would be unethical for lawyers to be in a union because their job was to represent their clients, not society in general. So when I was fired, the New York Times wrote a story on it and made me look to be a hero, quite frankly, and unbeknownst to me, that was read by somebody who called me on the phone and said, hey, I'm Abby. And that was Abby Hoffman in the beginning of Wild Years Ahead. Abby had been arrested at the Chicago uh, Democratic National Committee demonstrations. He had another case, a demonstration case out of Columbia University. And he said to me on the phone, I have a doctor and a dentist, but what I really need is a lawyer. <laughs> and so that began my relationship with Abby, which went on for 20 more years. At the time, he was wanted on bench warrants in Chicago. So I arranged with the prosecutors to surrender him. And when we flew into Chicago, police boarded the plane. I had already announced we we're coming to voluntary surrender. But they, of course, wanted to make a big press day out of it, boarded the plane and took him off uh, and placed him under arrest. We appeared in the two different courts that were necessary in order to get him bail. And at the end of a very long day, we were sitting outside a precinct where his belongings were kept. And two guys in trench coats come over and they have a subpoena for Abbott Hoffman with the House Un-American Activities Committee. And so it began. The House Un-American Activities Committee was politically dragging before it activists who were leaders in the protests at the Democratic National Committee meetings in August of 1968 and subpoenaed Abby for hearings in October of 68. The House on American Activity hearings were very important because they really informed what would happen with the Chicago 8 indictment, which came a few months, six months later. In October of 68, Abby and others appeared before Congress's House on American Activities Committee, which had a sordid history of political repression and suppression of First Amendment rights going all the way back to the, the era of the Rosenbergs. So we appeared in Washington at the House on American Activities Committee and also subpoenaed were Tom Hayden, Jerry Rubin, David Dellinger, and um, Rennie Davis. Those names, of course, would become defendants six, eight months later in the Chicago aid case. So the House on American Activities was the precursor and really informed what the government would do once the Republicans took power and Nixon was elected in 1968. In January of 69, he appointed John Mitchell Attorney General, and by April, the Chicago Eight were indicted. The film discusses this context a little bit. It doesn't 
leaves out the House Un-American Activities Committee, which is a really interesting background and helps inform the context. But the way the film describes it is, right, John Mitchell comes in, uh, the former AG, Ramsey Clark, from the Johnson administration's out, and Mitchell decides to go after the Chicago 8, right, then 8, because, according to the film, he has a kind of grievance with Ramsey Clark almost like a personal grievance because Ramsey Clark didn't resign early enough as was customary um, in the transition between administrations. And the way the film describes it is Palmer really pushed the indictment and the attorney general uh, or the U.S. attorney for Chicago, Thomas Ferran, and then the lawyer who tried the case, Richard Schultz, were a little bit unwilling participants, especially Richard Schultz. So I don't think anything of that is true. I think what was clear was Nixon was going after his enemies. The chosen eight were significant because they all represented parts of the anti-war and civil rights movement. They didn't have a connection necessarily to each other. For instance, Abby Hoffman and Jerry Rubin were yippies. They were cultural revolutionaries using their terms. Tom Hayden and Rennie Davis were intellectual leftists. Students for a Democratic Society was formed by them and nurtured by them on every school campus in the country, just about. And then there was Dave Dellinger, who'd come from the pacifist movement, where church people and all kinds of intellectuals had become opposed to the war. And of course, Martin Luther King joined his civil rights struggles with anti-war actions, and that brought in black liberation groups and civil rights groups of all kind. These were Nixon's enemies. He was conducting the war and expanding it, and they were opposing him. I don't think it had anything to do with a debate between Mitchell and Ramsey Clark. I've spoken to Ramsey over the years about all this. Uh, I think it had to do with what the House on American Activities Committee really informed them about. This was the opposition, liberal left opposition to the war in Vietnam and into the civil rights struggle. Ramsey Clark did testify, right, at least on a, like a voir dire at the trial. But the testimony, as I understand it, that he gave was very different that, uh, in, the, in, in real life, was very different than the film. In the film, he uh, essentially says this is a you know, politically motivated prosecution by Mitchell. Well, you know, he has said publicly, and he said there too, that he didn't think that it was worthy of a prosecution. That, I mean, this was not a conspiracy in any way. These group, these people never met together. This was just a joint effort of, of protest, anti-war protest and civil rights protest. There's nothing to do with crossing state lines to incite a riot. It was crossing state lines to protest the war effort, which was going to be expanded under Hubert Humphrey if he was the chosen nominee. Can you tell us a little bit about the defense team and how that was formed and the role of the different attorneys? Well, William Kunstler 
and I were both lawyers for some of the defendants, me, Abby, him, Dave Dellinger. And um, we, of course, represented them during the House Un-American Activities Committee hearings six or eight months earlier. And it was about the same subjects. As part of those hearings, the American Civil Liberties Union were present and brought a lawsuit against the committee, which of course failed. And so there was a building uh, of lawyers fighting not only UAC, but representing Abby, Dave, and the others. Tom Hayden had been involved in protests and particularly there were riots in Newark uh, after Martin Luther King was assassinated. And Tom Hayden met Lenny Weinglass, who was a New Jersey lawyer, excellent lawyer. And he wanted Len to represent him once the indictment came. So some of us had been involved before and it just continued. Well, we know it was the Chicago 8 case and you talked before a little bit about how the defendants were thrown together. They all were coming from different organizations, different different parts of the, or wings or aspects or whatever you want to call it, of the left, right? Different uh, strategies and emphasis. But the really the most randomly selected defendant, right, had to be Bobby Seale because he was, right, he was barely in Chicago. He was there for like a night and it seemed to, it seemed like they, the prosecution threw him in to really try to taint the defense. Is that an accurate statement? Well, I, I mean, I was saying before, I think that the purpose of the prosecution was to pick up on all the enemies that Nixon had and the groups that were out there organizing against them. To be clear, certain black organizations were very much a part of the organizing efforts against Nixon and the Republicans. You know, it was quite natural since he was there in Chicago, made a speech. And of course, every speech they interpreted as an incitement to riot. They had somebody from the black world as to show that these were Nixon's enemies. That's apparently what Nixon was up to and Mitchell was carrying it out. And so the, the Chicago 8 become the Chicago 7 after... If much before, after there's a mistrial, a motion for a mistrial is granted uh, against Bobby Seale. But the treatment of Bobby Seale by the judge, Julius Hoffman, is, I think, pretty astonishing in, in, and, and horrific. I'm going to just play a clip now for, for you to, to comment on. But the, the, the issue is, or one of the issues is, Bobby Seale wants to represent himself his uh his attorney the attorney he originally had is unable is is cannot uh attend as a medical uh charles gary who he had retained originally to represent him has a medical issue and is not able to go to the trial and so bobby seal since he's not able to appear bobby seal wants to represent represent himself and not be represented by counselor uh, who's representing the other defendants so let me play the clip and then I'd uh, love to hear what your thoughts are. This is from the trial of Chicago 8. 
We'll stand in recess for one hour and the court will resume at one hour. I have a motion I'd like to bring forward to the court. You wish to address the court, Mr. Seal? Yes, I have a motion. I will I'm... hear you, Mr. Seal. Yes, ma'am. Mr. Seal, do you have a motion? I, Bobby G. Seal, have a motion pro se to defend myself. I'd like to invoke the precedent of Adams versus U.S. X. Rel. McCann, where the Supreme Court. All right, gentlemen. Where are you learning these things? Does your young friend, Mr. Hampton, have a background in law? Your Honor, the other defendants would like to join in Mr. Seal's motion. Are you now speaking on behalf of Mr. Seal? No, Your Honor, I'm speaking on behalf of the other defendants. You're standing right next to him. Why don't you just represent him? Because I'm not his lawyer, sir. If I understand, Mr. Seal, this last month and a half, and I believe I have, he is not represented by counsel. Overruled. I am being denied right Mr. now Steele. my constitutional be right for the legal representation. You have lawyers to speak for you. No, he doesn't. Cite Mr. Counselor with his second count of contempt. All right. So this is one of the heated exchanges that the film depicts. Is this accurate? What was going on in the courtroom? This was the crucial opening to this case. Charles Gary, the longtime lawyer for the Black Panthers in Oakland, California, where they were formed, went to Judge Hoffman two months before the trial date, said he needed a gallbladder operation and asked for a month postponement. Everybody was willing to go along with it. Judge Hoffman denied that motion. Bobby Seale, the only lawyer he ever knew was Charles Gary, shows up at the trial without a lawyer. The judge and the prosecution scramble and decide that the lawyers who were working on various pretrial aspects of the case, like Michael Tiger, Michael Kennedy, Dennis Roberts, and myself, who uh, I had worked on pretrial motions, he dragged before the court and ordered us to represent Seal. We refused because Seal had a lawyer. It was the only lawyer he ever knew, and we supported his right to choose his own lawyer. Judge Hoffman held us in contempt, threw me in jail with Tiger in Chicago, in a cell with Bobby Seal, who was not out on bail on another case. And so the trial began with lawyers in jail. This created national news beyond belief. And it was a Friday that he held me in contempt, put me in jail. And Friday night after court was over, it was too late for anyone to go to the, to the US Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit. And we were stuck. And about 10 o'clock at night, an order came down from the Court of Appeals on their own, ruling that we should be let go on appellate bail. We hadn't even been sentenced. And that was how the trial began, with crazy actions by the judge, which just intensified in reaction to him jailing the lawyers. Ultimately, while I was in jail at lunchtime, with Seal, I said, the government has opened. You know what? If you're going to represent yourself, 
you're up. And when we came back after lunch, Seal stood up to make his own opening. The judge told him to sit down, had the marshal sit him down. So began the craziness and chaos of the reaction to Seal's attempts to defend himself. And that included his being gagged, bound, and beaten, right? Absolutely. And the, the movie pretty much got that stuff right. He was chained to a chair. He, he had a, this gag and he was mumbling under the gag, trying to talk. He was, his hands were tied behind his back. It was crazy. Somebody called it a medieval torture chamber. And that's what it looks like. I, from, it did puzzle me a little bit. The, with, I mean, the because you do, a defendant has the right, right, to self-representation. Uh, Bobby Seal cites the Supreme Court case. So what was the legal basis for uh, Judge Hoffman denying it? Was it there had been some initial appearance entered? And so it was, he viewed, Judge Hoffman viewed it as a matter of discretion? Because it did puzzle me. It, it, there's no rhyme or reason to what he did. He never explained himself. He just did it. Prosecutors wanted it and it was done. It, it, it was an outrage on every level. His lawyer came to the court telling the judge that he had to be operated on, asked for a lousy month. By the way, the case was indicted in April. The trial was September. This is one of the quickest trials in criminal history. And what convinced Judge Hoffman to, to actually to grant the mistrial motion so and Bobby, to have Bobby Seale dismissed from the case? Well, I always suspected that the government and the judge were talking outside of our presence, but it obviously was so chaotic in that courtroom with a defendant chained and gagged and trying to make noise through his gag that it became untenable. And so they wanted to continue with the trial and they couldn't continue with seal. It was just out of the question. Yeah, so bridge, bridge too far. So the other defendants were reversed on appeal, but that for different reasons, but that surely would have been reversed. Not only did he have a right to defend himself, he had a right to choice of counsel when such a short time from indictment to trial date. I mean, it's really unheard of. What were your impressions of Judge Hoffman beyond the, the treatment of Bobby Seale? The movie depicts him in a very negative light, uh, including his numerous uh, contempt citations against defense counsel. What were your impressions of Judge Hoffman? I, I really thought he was off as a rocker. I mean, he was just inappropriate all the time. Uh, it, it was not, it, I mean, the prosecutors were troubled by his the way he acted. He was just impossible. I don't know what his reputation was before, but in every way, it, it was bizarre. He would interrupt you. He would make sly comments. You know, this case was uh, the subject of pretrial motions that were very serious. Four or five of the defendants were subject to national security wiretaps and searches. I mean, there was, and the government disclosed years of warrantless searches, wiretaps. And I mean, they were considered enemies of the state. 
And so there was, it was serious things going on in this case. And need, needless to say, anti-war and civil rights were on the front pages of everything with Martin Luther King and you know numerous nationwide protests. So I, I don't know, you know what he thought he was doing. I don't know either. And, and it's not just the protests that were on the front page, right? The trial was covered nationally. As I understand it, it was difficult to get in as an observer. I mean, this was a, a very, uh, a major story. And it's hard to imagine a, a judge proceeding in this way when the, the world is watching the case. No question. It was just unfathomable. I mean, he, he was a bizarre personality. I mean, in addition to the, the defendants, he seemed to have it in for William Kunstler. He was cited with multiple contempt citations. And uh, if I'm not incorrect, I mean, Kunstler received a, a four-year sentence uh, for his contempt citations, which was longer than the sentences that the defendants got when they were convicted for crossing state lines for uh, to incite a riot. Right. He viewed Kunstler as, you know, the the leader of the enemy crowd. And whatever chance he got, he would issue a citation for contempt. I mean, it didn't end, start and end with Kunstler. All the defendants had contempt citations. And, you know, after the lawyers were jailed and the bizarre way that the trial started with seal bound and gagged, the trial became, you know, just one crazy episode after another, not the least of which led by my client, who was just brilliant, Abby Hoffman. Yeah, you know, in preparing for the podcast, I, you know, I knew some things about Abby Hoffman, um, general story, but I, you know, I read more and just kind of amazed at his genius. If you will. Unbelievable, Jonathan. There's nobody ever like him. You know, he looked at this trial as a major organizing effort against the war and for civil rights. And he went almost every night to another place to rile up supporters and anti-war activists. He would go to the University of Michigan, the University of Wisconsin, Ohio State, wherever. Every night it was somewhere else, speaking to thousands of people and organizing around the trial. And he said, don't remember, just remember TDA, the day after. You know what to do. And literally the day after. Millions of people were in the streets all over the country, half a million in the Boston Commons. In San Diego, the Bank of America was burned. I mean, this trial for Abby was an opportunity to take his anti-war and civil rights politics and push the country as far as he could. And there were polls taken after the trial that more Americans opposed the war more than 50% of the country after the trial, which was less before the trial. Now, while he viewed this as a great organizing opportunity, some of his co-defendants didn't. Tom Hayden wanted the case over with as soon as possible and didn't even want to present a defense. 
but we could talk more about that. Yeah, I, 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 there's another film, I don't know if you've seen, called The Chicago 10, um, which is a mix of animation and real life footage. And that in that film, it shows exactly what you say. They show Hoffman and some other, I think, and uh, Jerry Rubin and some of the other defendants go, going, traveling like what night or on the weekend, especially in organizing during the trial. Uh, and I mean, he really did. He saw, it It seemed to me, Abby Hoffman saw the the trial as an opportunity, as you said, to build uh, or increase the opposition, to mobilize opposition to the war. But I think he also saw the trial as political theater. He did not appear to place great faith in, well, in the legal institutions, but particularly not in the courtroom that was hearing his case. And so he, rather than kind of fight on their terms, he was going to try to expose the trial for what it was. Absolutely. And, and before the trial, he prepared a score, a score sheet like you get out of Yankee game with who the players were. And one side called the government, the other side called the conspiracy. I mean, these defendants were hardly conspirators. I mean, you can't imagine. I mean, when Bobby Seale came the first day, I'll never forget this. We had a conference room in the courthouse. This is the arraignment and the day that the trial date was set. Bobby Seale shows up. He was out on bail on another case at the moment. And he started to ask the lawyers for their business cards. And he went up to David Dellinger to ask him for his card, thinking that David was a lawyer. David was the lead defendant. It was United States against Dellinger et al. I mean, these people barely knew each other, except they were part of one gigantic movement for social change, anti-war and civil rights. Yeah, it's really important to bring that out. The film kind of just, I mean, it's, it definitely suggests the differences. Uh, between them and different approaches, but it, it does suggest that there was more of a relationship between them than than you say. But there was a, there were a lot of protests. I mean, these weren't the only protests either at the time, right? There were other groups protesting at the convention. Well, just think of it. David Dellinger was indicted in the Chicago Eight because he was the head of something called the MOB, M-O-B-E, the Mobilization and the War in Vietnam. And that was made up of numerous groups of all kinds, including church people. David was a pacifist and had a history of opposing war, even World War II. <laughs> you know, so there were many, many anti-war groups, you know, that were represented by the MOB. So th th this was just others, the Yippies, Students for a Democratic Society and the like. And he was a committed pacifist, I think, through the end of his life as well. That he was, although the Chicago trial got him so angry, that was as close as he ever came to thinking about violence. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, they show, no, I mean, the film, I think it's it's not accurate. They have him sh like shoving a marshal. Not That's accurate. Not, not accurate, right. <laughs> I mean, a, a good dramatic effect, I guess, to show he was pushed, but not accurate. I, I want to go back just for a minute, and I do want to. I want to talk more about Abby Hoffman and representing Abby Hoffman after. But I, I want to go just to this 
Abby Hoffman, Tom Hayden dynamic, because I think in a lot of ways that the film puts that at the center. They are different approaches, the way they view protests and how to achieve change. And um, in the end, I think they there's some kind of reconciliation, but that's kind of the underlying kind of conflict on the side of the defendants. So I'm going to play this clip, which is occurring at one evening when the defendants are meeting and there's an argument between uh, Hoffman and Tom Hayden. Did you mean the last thing I wanted is to end the war? What? Centuries ago, when the trial started, you said, why did I come to Chicago? And I said, to end the war. And then you turned to everyone and you said, the last thing he wants is to end the war. What did you mean by that? I meant that you're making the most of your close-up. Yeah. No more war, no more Abby Hoffman. What's your problem with me, Hayden? I really wish people would stop asking them that question. They wouldn't want us to Answer it. One time. All right. My problem is that for the next 50 years, when people think of progressive politics, they're going to think of you. They're going to think of you and your idiot followers passing out daisies to soldiers and trying to levitate the Pentagon. So they're not going to think of equality or justice. They're not going to think of education or poverty or progress. They're going to think of a bunch of stone-lost disrespectful, foul-mouthed, lawless losers. And so we'll lose elections. All because of me. Yeah. And winning elections, that's the first thing on your wish list. Equality, justice, education, poverty, and progress. They're second. If you don't win elections, it doesn't matter what's second. And it is astonishing to me that someone still has to explain that to you. Okay. Okay, so uh, so Jerry was talking about steadily. We don't have any money. I'm sorry, what? We don't have any money. So I stage stunts and cameras come and microphones come. And it's astonishing that someone still has to explain that to you. You're trading a cow for magic beans. That ended up working. What? The magic beans. There was a giant up there. Oh. I can't remember what happened after that. The little boy may have gotten eaten. And the giant turned out to be nice. Are you sure? No. It's almost hard to believe the seven of us weren't able to end a war. Let me ask you something. You guys should just shake hands. You think Chicago would have gotten differently if Kennedy got the nomination? Do I? (laughs) Yeah. Yes, Abby, I do. I think uh, the Irish guys would have sat down with Bailey and yes. I think so, too. Yeah? That's why I was wondering. Weren't you just a little bit happy? When the bullet ripped through his head, no Chicago, no Tom Hayden. I was one. Paul Barris, you fucking asshole! That's right. We're not going to jail because of what we did. We're going to jail because of who we are. Think about that the next time you shrug off cultural revolution. We define winning differently, you and I. Now you can really see the difference between their approaches. What did? How accurate is this? And what's your impression of this scene and of, you know, the competing approaches? Well, I, you know, I think there's something I like about the scene, even though it's not exactly what occurred or what they they were thinking, but it does create uh, an appropriate understanding of the differences in tactics. You know, Abby would say, I don't believe in isms, communism, capitalism, you know, he believed that organizing was about getting people involved and getting their spirits. 
And he viewed the trial as an organizing opportunity par excellence. Tom, the intellectual who was there at the Port Huron statements, the founding of SDS, couldn't stand Abby's tactics and didn't really understand them. I mean, Abby was uh, a tremendous motivator through, I mean, he adopted a whole persona. He, after all, you know, was a psychologist. He had gone to Brandeis and he adopted this sort of uh, yippee attitude to suck in young people. Tom was talking in Abby's view to old people. Abby wanted to organize the youth, which is why he founded the Youth International Party or the Yippies. And so they viewed everything basically the same, but the tactics were terribly different. Tom at the House Un-American Activities Committee sat down and testified you know, you won't remember a word of it, but it was probably all right and very serious and very anti-war. Abby's approach, he sat down with me and said, we have to steal the headline. We have to do something that takes away the House and American activities ability to tr trash us, to label us. And he came up with wearing an American flag shirt to say, I'm more American than you. I'm exercising my First Amendment rights. And I said, Abby, there's a new flag desecration statute. You're going to be arrested. He said, perfect. <laughs> <laughs> and he was. He showed up with a flag shirt and was immediately arrested. It was front page of every newspaper. It was that year was a fight about the flag. Time Magazine had the flag on the cover. Abby created a way to take away the only power UAC had, which was their condemnation and calling everybody communists. Yeah, I mean, it, and it seems he really, you know, he, he just understood at a deeper level what was going on in the trial and what the trial was about and almost like rather than trying to counter the arguments on their own term. He just kind of flipped everything around and showed their absurdity. I mean, there, there's so many moments. Um, I think some are, some are in the film and, and some uh, are not captured, but uh, you know, he dressing in judicial robes, right. To mock the courtroom. Um, I, I think he, uh, if I'm not incorrect, when he was sworn in as a witness, uh, he gave the finger to the judge um, <laughs> saying, yeah, cause a lot of around obscenity too. So he says, you know, your idea, uh, your idea of justice is the only obscenity in the room. And then apparently at the end of the trial, I don't know if this is true or not, he suggested the judge try LSD and uh, offered to set him up with a dealer he knew in Florida. <laughs> he actually, when he got on the stand, I mean, he thought through things to a degree that you have to be, be with him to understand. Before the trial in early August was the Woodstock Festival. Abby was enraged that they organized this youth-dominated music festival a month before they were going on trial, as he would say, for our lives. And, you, and he stormed into the office of the people putting together Woodstock and demanded 
that they have Phil Oaks and other anti-war singers on the program. And he went to Woodstock and he made a whole thing of it. And when he got on the witness stand near the end of the year, I guess it was December sometime, he said, uh, they said, name and address. And he said, Abby Hoffman, Woodstock Nation. <laughs> he just put it all together all the time. Amazing. And he, and he operated, you know, it's amazing now looking back as, as he and Jerry Rubin too, they were operating, uh, you know, without social media, right? I mean, they, they were masters at the, you know, publicity stunt or whatever you want to call it to get the cameras and the newsprint. But I mean, I can only imagine if they had access, if Abby Hoffman had a Twitter account or an Instagram, I mean, it would have like, you know, supercharged. Amazing. He would try to think of things that could grab the headlines and use the media for his own purposes. Condemning outrageous capitalism, he would go to the stock exchange, get in the balcony and throw 101 singles on the floor and watch all the brokers killing each other, trying to get the money. <laughs> and, and and he was, you know, this wasn't his first uh, legal proceeding, right? Afterwards, he was, um, well, he was arrested at UMass, right? In 19, in the early 1970s for protesting CIA recruiting along with Amy Carter, right? right. And, and as I understand, um, when he was charged, his defense was that the university policy had limited campus recruitment to law-abiding organizations. And the defense argued that the CIA was engaged in illegal activities by aiding the, because they were aiding the Contras against the Sandinistas in Nicaragua in violation of the Boland Amendment and a host of other things. Absolutely. And he represented himself in that trial. And he received after the trial a letter from Jimmy Carter thanking him for the way he treated his daughter and the way he acted in the trial. And it was one of his cherished possessions. Oh, wow. Oh, that's great. Was it, well, was it ever challenging for you? You represented him through the years until his, you know, his tragic death in 1989, I believe. And, you know, sometimes, you know, he's doing these things and the defense lawyer in you maybe would say, Abby, this isn't in your interest. You know, I don't want you, you know, this will hurt you. You, 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 you know, you might go to jail, you might be convicted. Right. I mean, you know, I understand what you're trying to do, but was it was there ever like a challenge for you in giving him legal advice, given his approach? You know, it was a constant battle <laughs> on that level. But, you know, he organized me. He made me a believer. Uh, one of the first days we met after he called me. Uh, I came down to his one-room apartment on the Lower East Side, and it was around 7 o'clock at night, and we spoke for 12 hours. <laughs> he cooked some food, you know, sometime around 6 a.m. You know, he said, let's make a pact. I will make a revolution. You just keep me out of jail. <laughs> <laughs> And hopefully, like, accomplish both of both of those goals, right? That's right. We talked about Tom Hayden and Dave Dellinger, uh, and incidentally, Dave Dellinger is the one who reads apparently reads the name of the protesters. Uh, sorry, Dave Dellinger is the one who reads the name of the dead soldiers in Vietnam, not Tom. Right. Uh, but what about Jerry Rubin? Uh, what was his relationship with Jerry Rubin like? Well, Abby and Jerry were 
founding members of Yippies. They were very close, along with a third person by the name of Paul Krasner, who had a quarterly magazine called The Realist. But he too was a founder of the Yippies. And their whole idea was about using the media for organizing purposes, cultural issues, organizing young people. And so they were part of a team. You know, I know Jerry, I knew Jerry very well. I represented him as well. But, you know, he had some great ideas. He wrote several books, one called Do It, uh, about all their escapades, but he was no Abby. <laughs> I don't know what else to say about it, but ultimately Jerry Rubin went to work on Wall Street, which really offended Abby. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. They took different paths. Abby continued kind of doing what he was doing, doing his thing. And Jerry, as you said, you know, became a broker. I think apparently did well. Was that- not only that, but he wrote an op-ed for the Times. The closing lines were something like, let's make capitalism work for everybody. <laughs> Abby said, what? <laughs> It's designed not to work for everybody. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly, right, exactly. He thought there should be no, in the country, there should be no homeless people, everyone should have health care, right? So it's, uh, it's yeah, it was a, kind of a surprising uh, divergence, uh, I guess, for, you know, Jerry Rubin. And- well, it, I mean, he, he left Wall Street, I guess he ended up being involved in the, the vitamin industry in some way, I forget exactly, but they cared about each other. I did recall Jerry, when Abby, Abby passed away, Jerry had some very moving tributes and everything. So, so that's certainly the case as well. Yep. Just to go back to the trial for a second, one of the interesting things that the movie doesn't capture is the number of, call them celebrity, although the defendants were kind of celebrities, or cultural witnesses, right? Norman Mailer. Judy Collins, Allen Ginsberg, Arlo Guthrie, some others. Jesse Jackson. Thank you, Jesse Jackson. Timothy Leary, Bill Oates, Arlo Guthrie, Country Joe McDonald, Dick Gregory. You know, it was an honor for people to be able to be a witness for the defense in the Chicago 8 case. Again, Abby wanted to put on a defense. Tom Hayden wanted to rest after the government's case. And I, I'm not laying it all on Tom. There was a debate. Abby won out and convinced everybody to put on a defense. And it became such an honor. I remember there was a congressman, Allard Lowenstein, who uh, was the head of the Dump Johnson movement when Lyndon Johnson was president. Uh, and a terrific person. But some of the defendants remembered that he went as a student on behalf of the CIA to a Helsinki Student International Students Conference. And these defendants ultimately were very political and they wouldn't let Allard testify. Yeah, I mean, just, just an amazing way to conceive the to conceive of the trial. So we've talked a little bit about at least one thing the film got right, or at least approximately right, the treatment of Bobby Seale and, and some of the things that it got wrong. 
understanding that it's very difficult to capture what was a five month trial in a two hour film and to capture the story and to get the details right. If you had been a consultant, uh, writer, director, Aaron Sorkin on the film, what would you have, what, what are some of the main pieces of advice, the main piece of advice you would have given him? Well, to me, it was the most important trial in American history. I say that because not only was it totally a national event, but it involved the key subjects of the generation. And it was very effective in changing people's minds. Aaron Sorkin had none of that. He didn't have demonstrations. I mean, millions of people went in the streets at various points during the trial uh, and, and certainly afterwards and the day after. But in October of 69 and November of 69, half a million people in Washington, D.C., chanting, stop the trial, stop the trial. These people were changing society, changing important politics of the nation. He didn't do anything about that. This judge put lawyers in jail. He didn't put it in the movie. It set the trial off on a road that was crazy. He just missed so much. But on the other hand, to his credit, and to Sasha Baron Cohen's credit, they did capture a feeling that was special. Sasha Baron Cohen, when he was uh, in England doing a paper, he decided to make his paper on American Jews who went to the civil rights movement in the South to organize people to vote. And one of those people was Abby Hoffman. And he wanted to play Abby. You know, it just seems to me that the movie had an opportunity for other things, to point out other things and its role in the history of the country. And it failed in that respect. But again, I did get this good feeling about the the role of the defendants and how they interacted with the government. I'm glad you that that you say that about Sasha Baron Cohen's performance because you knew Abby so well and that it kind of captured him in in a good in good respects. Because you know, for someone like me, I've never, obviously never met him, only know him by what I read about or what I see. It's nice to have that impression because kind of it's the Sasha Baron Cohen as Abby Hoffman that kind of stays with me because otherwise you just have the photos, but that's the, you know, that's kind of the image that I have and probably a lot of other people have. So I'm glad that as someone who was close to him and represented him for two decades, that was your impression. Yes. And he was interviewed and, and talked about that. I mean, you think about, you know, Abby going to the South. He didn't go as a yippie. He went with his suit jacket <laughs> and organize people to get them to register to vote. Civil rights was his mantra as much as anti-war was. Only thing that he liked more was playing tennis and beating up on me. <laughs> I read that he was an excellent tennis player, which is, uh, so I guess he was, he was an athlete at one time. He was definitely an athlete. He was captain of the Brandeis tennis team. And he and I used to play all the time. He was one tough cookie. It's a strong serve. 
he was fast and he had a good backhand. As a matter of fact, in front of the courthouse one day, he did one of those standing flips. Wow. Blew, blew everybody's mind. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. Amazing. I want to ask you quickly about the prosecutor, though. Prosecutor Richard Schultz, who's played by Joseph Gordon-Levitt, um, is made out to be something of a sympathetic character. He's forced by Mitchell and his boss, Thomas Rand, to prosecute this case. And the way the film depicts it is that while uh, Schultz doesn't agree with the protesters, he's he doesn't like the case. And he's kind of reluctant in prosecuting it. And at the end, they have the scene where when Tom Hayden reads the names of the dead, uh, the men who are killed in Vietnam and everyone stands up in tribute, uh, Schultz stands up too. So like they've won over Schultz. How accurate is that? It's totally false. Not only were they gung-ho and obviously gung-ho, there was no interaction with any of the defendants as portrayed in the film. But beyond that, 20 years later or 15 years later, Schultz and I were invited on a TV program. The Harvard law professor, I forget his name, used to do these one hour or half hour TV shows with lawyers arguing the case in front of a jury and the jury would vote. And they chose Schultz and I to argue one of these cases. And it was a protest case. And as soon as we got into the green room, the animosity still lurked in him. <laughs> wow. I mean, it just, it, it was totally false. They were gung-ho and they acted in the way. I mean, he gladly argued for my contempt because I refused to represent Sue. Yeah, that's, I mean, it, it's just, you know, it's not a major point in the movie, but it, it's, I mean, to me, it's a little bit troubling and partly because of the way Sorkin wants to kind of defend the system and defend, you know, the good guys in the government, even if there were bad actors like Mitchell. But, you know, as one defense attorney to another, I, you know, knowing what Schultz was really like does not surprise me. Yeah. And, you know, there's something I saw Sorkin interviewed on something. I think maybe it was MSNBC the night show, the late 10 o'clock show with Lawrence O'Donnell. And he said he never heard of the Chicago before he was asked to rewrite the script. I saw this script years earlier when it was given to HBO. A friend of mine used to be co-CEO of HBO. And he sent it to me and it made Abby to be a buffoon. They did, just didn't get it. And ultimately, it went to, I forget his name, uh, a comedic actor who was going to direct it. Uh, and then finally to Aaron Sorkin. It went through various stages. So I don't know where he got, uh, who did his research, but I never saw anything anywhere that indicated the prosecutors were sympathetic or unhappy with their role. Or even ambivalent. Jerry, let me ask you, because after your work on, you know, Chicago 7, Chicago 8, and your representation of the Black Panther trial, which actually love to hear you comment on that too. You continued in this work, but your, you know, your practice grew broader, more diverse, representing 
business leaders, political uh, leaders, uh, others. How did the trial kind of affect your development and your career? Well, I had mentors around the time of the trial, including Bill Kunstler in the trial. Florence Kennedy was a black lawyer who actually represented H. Rap Brown and became very active in the women's movement. She hired my sister-in-law, Carol, who was a lawyer. And I learned that uh, something about battles and wars, how these things that, you know, were difficult to resolve and you, you lose a lot as a, on the defense side are battles, but there's the big war. And somehow that trial was a, an education in itself, you know, problems and getting through the battles and thinking of the big picture, keeping the overall big picture in mind. And it sort of served me over the years. I did many political cases in that era, Black Liberation Army, Black Panthers, Buffalo Nine trial, which was anti-war stuff, many, many student arrests and protests. But one of the things that always stuck with me was my work as a legal aid lawyer and how I felt we were not up to the task. We weren't trained, we didn't have resources. And so the defense lawyer role became paramount in my life. And so I was a founder of most of the defense organizations and served as the head of two of them to try to change the quality that defendants receive in terms of justice in this country, which is still a major, major problem. You know, you think of places outside of New York where there are no defender systems at all. The judges just throw lawyers into cases willy-nilly, serious cases. So the quality of justice is sort of became paramount to me. And needless to say, I wanted to be able to make a living at what I do. So it was important to get into white collar work. And uh, I've done so. I mean, and you talk about the problems uh, in terms of funding and, and defense resources. I mean, even even in places like New York, you know, as opposed to a state like Mississippi, that's still vast, you know, defense vastly overmatched. Most cases uh, don't go to trial. People are forced to take pleas. So it's a that's an ongoing that's an ongoing problem. So much so when I was president of the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers, I had a meeting with Janet Reno when she was attorney general. I guess this was, I don't know, late 90s, and got her to start thinking about this. I told her how I got involved and how ineffectual I felt as a public defender and so overwhelmed with caseloads and lack of resources and lack of training and how, how bad it is in so many states that she actually organized conferences on the subject, bringing together public defender organizations and actually allocated some funds within her discretionary use of her budget to help. Of course, the problem is never ending. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're good people and good things important to push back, but you know, the task is also large, but it's an ongoing struggle. On the film for a second, 
I just want to get your sense of whether and why the film is relevant today. I mean, how does the film resonate on the events of the, of the Chicago 7, Chicago 8 trial in 2023? Well, I'm not sure if it does, but I would hope it does. And if he had dealt with some of the stuff that was left out, its role in history and the massive demonstrations it spurned and its effect on the country, it would have, maybe it has affected things like Black Lives Matter, the Lloyd protests, uh, you know, it should. Whether it did or does, I don't know for sure, but certainly that's an aspect that the movie could have addressed better. One of the things I'm thinking about today is, you know, a lot of the large protests are on the other side now, right? It's more right wing. Yeah. National groups. And in some ways, they're more adept at the type of publicity stunts or theater than the left is. I don't know. Do, do you agree with that? I'm not sure that that's necessarily true, but a lot of people on both sides have adopted Abby's tactics and the way he thinks about things and creative ways to, to gender support in the media or at least coverage in the media. I remember when Bush W came to New York for, I, I guess the Republican conventions, maybe 10 years ago, there were groups protesting. And one of the groups that were protesting was billionaires <laughs> who went down the street throwing crumbs at poor people begging. You know, that kind of abophile, I would call it, abby stunts, were prevalent on the left and now on the right as well. Yeah, and, and you know, but what, what's striking to me about Abby Hoffman is even as his tactics have been adopted by the right, if you will, his heart was always in the right place, right? I mean, his, his, you know, they took his tactics, or some of his tactics, but they didn't take his his values and his and his, you know, kind of like kind humor. Exactly. So you know, after the Chicago trial, he stayed as an activist until his death. I mean, he got involved in all these issues, saving the, the St. Lawrence River, all kinds of other social issues, he never stopped. And he was in, so there was a period of time right from the maybe 73, 74, when he had been arrested on drug related charges till 1980, I think, where he was, he was, he went into hiding, but he was very public at the time, right? He would appear, I think he would, would continue to lecture at 20 or 30 colleges a year. Uh, I, I just must've been, and as attorney, that must've been kind of a surreal experience. Totally. Uh, he adopted the persona of Barry Freed, uh, an activist uh, against the destruction of the St. Lawrence River. He, he moved to a community in Western New York and became a leader of a multi-state attempt to stop Congress's uh, allocation of billions of dollars to transform the St. Lawrence River by taking out the Thousand Islands, all the islands in the river, so there could be winter navigation by boat. 
steel and other products coming from the west to the east. Uh, and it was going to do havoc with the environment. And he started this group called Save the River. And they demonstrated through several states. They brought court actions. Ultimately, Senator Moynihan came to the upstate town where Abby was living to hold a hearing on the winter navigation project in a public school gym. And Abby was named Barry Freed, was one of the key witnesses and gave this speech, emotional, talking about no to the destruction of the river, no to the destruction of the environment and onward. And at the end of which, Senator Moynihan said, now I know where the 60s went. And so Senator Moynihan knew that Barry Freed was Abby Hoffman or did he not? No, he was no. looking at Barry Freed and said, oh my God, now I know where the 60s went, thinking it was Barry Freed, oh not realizing that he was face to face with the 60s. <laughs> How, what position did you, this put you in as, as Abby's lawyer? <laughs> who he was doing this with just like, this is Abby, this is, you know. Well, I found an ethics opinion that said communications with somebody who's a fugitive for the purpose of arranging his surrender is not unethical. Good, good opinion. And then he, at the end, just to, yeah, so everyone knows, as I, my understanding is he, you know, at some point he goes on Barbara Walters, right, and then surrenders. And he surrenders it, to Barbara Walters on the St. Lawrence. Amazing. I mean, what a bring to bring it together. And he goes in and he does well. I think he does about four months or something. And then he's back out again for the remainder. Well, that's a whole other story. I mean, the pressure that we were able to mount with Abby's friends like Norman Mailer on Bob Morgenthau, you know, to get the special narcotics prosecutor, Sterling Johnson, who passed away recently not to destroy Abby, was immense. We had letters from Ramsey Clark, wow. Buckley, William F. Buckley. Really? People like that all organized at parties thrown by Norman Mailer, which I would speak about Abby's case and about his life. And finally, Morgenthau was inundated with these letters, and Morgenthau's wife, had been a New York Times reporter and liked Abby a lot. And so Morgenthau finally came around to helping me deal with Sterling Johnson and got a sentence that he ended up doing a few months. That is some, you know, amazing advocacy. And, you know, I think it just shows what you do just in the courtroom is just a piece of it, especially with a kind of high profile defendant right. like Abby Hoffman. Absolutely. <laughs> Amazing. So I wanted to just to end with a closing uh, words from Abby Hoffman's his last speech in, at Vanderbilt University in April 1989, just before he passed away. He was continuing to speak. You want me to read it? Yeah, why don't you read that? That would be great. Yeah, that'd be perfect. I mean, it's pretty amazing that he's speaking at Vanderbilt. And at the end of his speech, the question period, one of the people in the audience said, so what did it all mean? What were the 60s all about? What, what, what does it tell us? And without skipping a beat, he said the following. 
In the 60s, apartheid was driven out of America. Legal segregation, Jim Crow, ended. We didn't end racism, but we did end legal segregation. We ended the idea that you could send a million soldiers 10,000 miles away to fight a war people didn't support. We ended the idea that women are second-class citizens. Even George Bush has to deal with childcare now. The battles we won in that period of civil war and strife, you cannot reverse. We were young, we were reckless, arrogant, silly, headstrong, and we were right. I regret nothing, Abby. That's amazing words. And I think, you know, there's a lot, you know, when you think back to the way things were before, how much was accomplished and accomplished, I think, uh, not just through the political type of reforms that Tom Hayden character was pushing for, but for the cultural revolution that Abby pushed. And important to remember, there's a lot of struggles now, but there's been a lot of progress. Absolutely. I mean, the changes that were affected by what I view as the greatest generation. I know Tom Brokaw says it's about World War II. I think it's about the 60s because the people who were involved in those movements in the 60s, civil rights, anti-war, women's liberation, changed society in fundamental ways. And so that history is really very important to understand how we got where we are. And if you think about it, what Abby Hoffman was advocating at the time of the trial of the Chicago 8 would be the democratic program today. Jerry, it's been, it's been so great to have you on to be able to talk to you about the film, about your experiences during this period, and, and above all about your you know, relationship uh, professional and personal with uh, with Abby Hoffman. So I just want to thank you. It's been an, you know an honor and a, and, a, and a privilege to speak with you. It's been a lot of fun for me getting back my head into a world that I loved. <laughs> yeah, it's been a while, right? So, but uh, sure has. Yeah, but uh, amazing and uh, yeah. And so I, I you know recommend the film is is uh, uh, certainly not perfect, but does have many aspects that make it worth seeing. And there, as I said, there are other. Films about this period, the Chicago Tens, another one, the animated film with real life footage by Brett Morgan, which actually does show all the activities that were going on outside in the streets at the time that you mentioned, Jerry. So thank you again. You're more than welcome and nice to talk to you.